Welcome to Spirituality Matters, a podcast that focuses on the intersection of spirituality and humanity. Now let's settle in and find that sacred space between here where I am and there where you are. And let us be reminded that the holy transcends our physical bodies and our time together is just as sacred and meaningful as if we were sitting beside one another. Okay, let's get started. Today's episode is entitled The Road to Hell. Now, this podcast is inspired by my blog for this week that you can find at my website, RevCarla.com. Okay, so the saying goes, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So this has been like a proverb and it's been used for centuries and its exact origins aren't clear, but it has been attributed to various sources throughout history. One of the earliest known references was to someone named St. Bernard of Clairvaux, I think I'm saying that right, who lived in the 12th century and who was a theologian. He wrote, hell is full of good intentions or desires. So kind of on the same vein. But it also found some popularity in a collection of proverbs by Samuel Johnson in the 18th century, even though he said, I'm not the original person who who said that. So it's been widely used in literature, in speech, in everyday conversation. And of course, if you grew up in church, like many of us did, you heard it a lot in, in sermons. Now, just so we're clear, you know, you, I know you've heard of the book of Proverbs in the Bible, but a proverb is like a concise or traditional saying, something that the words are meaningful and impactful, and you're going to remember, you're going to remember them, spare the rod, spoil the child. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. Things like that. They go, they go on and on. And they're typically passed down through generations because they show cultural, social, and ethical values for certain communities or for certain times. So they're interesting to study as well because you get an idea of what people's values were and what their beliefs were at the time. So it's very, uh, very common also to use uh, a lot of metaphor and a lot of rhyming in them just so it helps you uh, remember them. So that brings us to the book of Proverbs in the Christian Bible's Old Testament, which is, of course, a collection of sayings and teachings that have uh, widely been attributed to King Solomon, although they recognize, they being those scholars, recognize that, that there had to have been other authors who contributed to those, to those writings. Now, the book doesn't come out and say who wrote any specific writings, but King Solomon was known for his wisdom. And he was said to have played a significant role in compiling and authoring many of the Proverbs in that book. But like I said, many scholars say, no, there's a lot of authors that are involved in that. And maybe it was something that just he compiled together or he had people compiled together. I mean, someone with hundreds of wives, does he really have time to compile a book of Proverbs? Probably not. But it's considered part of the biblical wisdom literature in that section of the Old Testament in the Bible. So now I want to pause here a minute and take a quick turn down a left turn alley and let's go down into this rabbit hole, if you will. Let me just see how many cliches I can come out here with. But I want to talk about the Bible as in the context of the Christian Bible. 
because it's obviously it's divided into two major sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the Old Testament is going to be categorized by different books. The first part is considered the Torah. uh, Those are the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Then you have the historical books, and that goes from Joshua to Esther. And then you have the wisdom and the poetry books, which is Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastics, and the Song of Solomon. Then you have major prophets, And then you have the minor prophets, and that makes up the Christian Bible Old Testament. And I'll get to why I call it that in just a minute. Then you have the New Testament, which you have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then you have the Acts of the Apostles. Then you have Pauline epistles. So so these are the letters that are attributed to Paul, the Apostle Paul. Then you have the general epistles, which means these are letters that are written by other people. And then, of course, you have the apocalyptic book, which is Revelation. Now, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible are also known as the Pentateuch, Penta being five, which means the first five books. This is also considered as in the in the Hebrew language, the Torah, as I said. So that's important for the uh, Jewish religion as well. Now, the Hebrew Bible is known as the Tanakh or the Tanakh. So what that is, is what what the Christians call the Old Testament is actually a living, breathing, ancient, sacred text of Judaism. So it's not called Old Testament for Jewish people. It is their living, breathing document. The Christian Bible includes the Hebrew Bible. So we can call that the Jew, the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible. So the Christian Bible includes the Hebrew Bible and as it's called the Old Testament, and then it adds the New Testament, which contains the life, the teachings, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the early Christian writings. So the Christian Bible is the scripture of Christianity and the Hebrew Bible is primarily the scripture of Judaism. The problem comes in when you understand the severity of replacement theology. Replacement theology is also known as supersessionism. This is a theological view that asserts the church has the right to replace or supersede Israel as God's chosen people because Christians believe in Jesus as the Messiah so the the Hebrew Bible becomes the Old Testament because the New Testament is the new covenant after Jesus's birth. So it's it suggests that the promises made to Israel were transferred to the church, to the Christianity. So Christians see the completion of the scripture in the the Hebrew Bible becoming the Old Testament and the New Testament being the completed scripture for Christians. And in their mind, that's for everyone because everyone should believe as they do. So according to replacement theology, the Jewish people, now this is pretty crude, but this is true. The Jewish people are seen as obsolete or rejected by God due to their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. So this is very problematic. And you can also see how so many Christian churches 
um, are steeped in anti-Semitism because they not only believe this, they wield that judgment out towards people of the Jewish faith. Now, replacement theology is not universally held by all Christians, which means that you'll hear them use language like I did, the Christian Bible Old Testament, because they're making a distinction between the fact that that part of the scripture is still sacred to the Jewish people and they want to acknowledge it. This is a good example of showing acceptance and kindness for an interfaith world. So regardless of what you want to believe about your faith, we are in an interfaith world. And the Jewish people who had the scripture first have the right to expect people to honor their beliefs. So there's a lot of other things that we could keep going down this little rabbit hole here if we wanted to, but uh, there are it's, it is important to note here that there are also Christian denominations who have accepted as part of their canon or the completion of the Bible books uh, that are called the Apocrypha. Now, the Apocrypha is a collection of religious texts that are not included in the standard biblical canon accepted by most Christian denominations, but some Christian denominations do include the Apocrypha. And there there are uh, Tobit, Judith, Wisdom of Solomon, and Maccabees that are in the Apocrypha. Now, every church that I had ever gone to did not accept the Apocrypha, didn't study it, never acknowledged it, did anything about it, fully and passionately rejected it in some, in some ways. But there are some reasons to study it regardless of your religious heritage. I mean, why not? Why not take a tour into Judith? Read the Maccabees. It's fascinating to, to read it because it has ex historical reference. It has value in helping you put the stories together. So if it feels something that you want to do, do that. Now, another word that you might hear sometimes is what they call the Greek translation of the New Testament, and that's called the Septuagint. Now, again, these words even are hard for me to pronounce, and a lot of times I mispronounce them because I read them so often, but it's just important to know these things because people will use them, especially if you're listening to scholars and like, oh my God, what is that word? Well, the Septuagint is just the collection of the New Testament that's been translated into Greek. That's all it is, which happened sometime in third century BCE. BCE is before common era, which sometimes you'll hear called BC before Christ. So let's keep going on here. So I, when I started this blog, I started explaining that I woke up one day and I just heard the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And I'm like, all right, I want to write about what it means to be spiritual, but not religious. And how do I bring that? Why, why is this showing up for me? I don't even know if I know how to bring this up, but that happens a lot where I'm up at my 2.30, 2.33 AM time. And I'm feeling this nudge to try to figure out how I'm going to build a bridge from the road is the road to hell is paved with good intentions to being spiritual, but not religious. And I got to thinking about it and I'm like, well, I don't remember the last time I heard it because I have not been in an evangelical church for a very long time. But then I realized that how many of those phrases were used in my past and how many I no longer use because they were part of this 
fear-based theology that was so prominent in my religious heritage. So let's talk a little bit about fear-based theology, because I know you hear me say this a lot as well in my videos on social media and here on the podcast, but fear-based theology is this, it's this theological perspective, and it's about emphasizing fear, punishment, and condemnation. And it often focuses on do this, and if you don't, you're going to suffer eternal damnation, you're going to experience hellfire, and you are going to experience the wrath of God. So this is a bad, this is a motivating factor. And it really came around in the 1800s, the 1700s, when pastors were looking at ways to motivate believers to come to church. If love, mercy, and grace isn't going to do it. All right, well, then let's do it through fear. I don't care. Let's do it through fear, guilt, shame, unworthiness, whatever we have to do. Their anxiety, psychological stress, we don't care about any of that. All they need is is this fear of God in their lives. And if that puts them in the pews, that's going to be, that's going to be fine. So it, it definitely came along, especially when you started to see the John Nelson Darby's teaching about the uh, end times and the rapture. Because if you're not going to be uh, good and we get to define what good is, then you're going to miss the rapture and the good people are going to get raptured and you're going to stay here to experience all that's going to happen in the book of Revelation. So obviously many of us have experienced this fear-based theology, but it's often taught in sermons. It's taught that God is this vengeful, wrathful being that is eager to punish it's like this this deity who just is waiting to trap you setting traps all the time to trap you at the same time we're also supposed to believe that this is a benevolent loving god okay whatever also religious practices that are used to to use fear as a means to control people and this belief that salvation is only based on avoiding punishment rather than receiving God's love and forgiveness. So in other words, I'm going to do these things because I don't want to get punished versus I want a desire to expand my spirituality, live more compassionately and offer that love and grace to other people. No, it's enough that I'm just fearful of dying in a horrible death and living in torment for eternity. So I'm going to do what the church tells me to do. So it definitely has had negative psychological impact and emotional impact on people over the years. And for many of us, it impacted our spiritual well-being and it caused religious trauma. I mean, for many of us, we know that that's where our religious trauma came from, was these teachings around fear-based theology. Now, as a Jew, Jesus would have held beliefs consistent with Jewish teachings. So in other words, even though you have this fear-based theology that's really kind of taken hold in this modern America evangelical church, Jesus would have believed in God returning to earth and to reign for a thousand years. And he would have likely believed in the resurrection of the dead, but he talked about this future judgment, but his eschatology, which is the study of end times, he believed in this divine intervention that God would intercede and establish God's kingdom on earth. He believed that would happen in his lifetime. So as a Jewish person, 
Jews believed in this concept of Sheol, S-H-E-O-L. And this concept said that there's this realm of the dead, kind of like this holding place between living and dead. And there you basically live in this, it's like a neutral place. It was shadowy, it was gloomy, but both the righteousness and the wicked were there. It was like a state of unconsciousness or inactivity. It wasn't a place of punishment or reward. Now there were uh, Jews who did think it was, it, it evolved over time. It evolved, it became a place thing that could be weaponized to control people, that it was a place like, oh, you're going to get judged here. And then off you go into torment for the rest of your lives. But for those of us who read Jesus's words through his teachings about emphasizing love, compassion, forgiveness, we see that as being incompatible with a lot of this concept of literal hell and fear-based theology that's taught in the modern American Christianity, because he believed in this social justice and equity for all. And that came through his parables and his teaching on judgment and punishment, because that's what he saw. This was very metaphorical in how he was, how he was teaching this. Okay. So I never knew how much fear-based theology was impacting me. And I tell this story in the blog, but in 1994, when my then fiance and I were looking at churches to attend, I was raised Southern Baptist. He was raised uh, Presbyterian, but we had decided I, by that time I had already, I really wasn't wanting to go back into the Southern Baptist. I knew that I was being pulled away from it. So I was uh, interested in going to a Presbyterian church. I felt that I was more liberal and that I was more progressive. And I thought, sure, let's go check this out. This might be a great place because we wanted to be anchored in a church. And we thought that would be a good thing to do. Well, at the beginning of this service, when the ministers were getting ready to process forward, that's when I noticed that there was a woman minister who was coming forward. I thought, oh, that's interesting. Then she went to the pulpit. And then I realized I'm getting ready to listen to a woman minister preach. She's going to lead the service. And I about freaked out. Now, this was this was like 33 years ago, but I lost my breath. I felt like I was having a heart attack. And I was absolutely convinced that at the end of the sermon, even though it was sunny, 85 degrees outside, I was going to go out and get hit by lightning. I really did. Because... I was, what I was doing was so dis, distasteful and evil to God that I was deserving of death. That was really going through my mind. Now, obviously I've gotten over that, but that day in 1994, it was very real for me that I thought I, I was doing something wrong. And this thing about where you hear about God being such an active agent in your life that he actually cares about me sitting in a church and I'm going to get punished for that tells you the kind of mindset that I had that this God, this supreme being is not so busy in, in all other things that he has the time 
to do this. And I, I tell in the blog also, because I just used the word he, this masculinized, anthropomorphized, patriarchal God I lost a long time ago. But as I as I tell this story, I, I go back and to use language that was meaningful to me at the time. I don't use that language now. Every once in a while, it'll still come out. But for the most part, I don't use it anymore. So here I am trying to reconcile this and feeling like, I don't know what to do with this. Now, of course, lightning didn't arrive. I'm I'm still here and we joined the church. We were married in it and we spent many years there until it no longer served us and, and we left. And I've told that story several times, but it's important to understand that that's the impact. People don't understand. I'll, I'll even have people now ask me, why did it take you so long to leave? I don't understand why, why wouldn't you just leave? Like they become, they become insulting. They mock me and say, why are you, why? I don't understand. Why would you stay in a church for so long? Well, you're, it's your fault for staying. You have no idea the power that fear-based theology and patriarchal indoctrination has on you. If you think that you can just walk away without having to do some level of deconstructing before you do it. You just don't understand being raised in the 60s by this system and then deciding to walk away from it, especially when you were physically abused by men who were protected in that same system. And you were you learned a long time ago that your voice meant nothing, that you had no power, and yet you were trying to constantly fight that. So yeah, it did take me a long time to break free from it. But the people who just judge me for that, that it took me a long time, just don't understand. So instilling this constant state of fear, guilt, and anxiety, this, this is hard. Not only does it hinder your spiritual growth, it changes you fundamentally about the way you see people. And what I didn't reconcile at that time, what I didn't notice is that how in my mind, this God who loves me is also punishing me. And if God is all knowing and all seeing, then God knew I was going to stay in that, that pew, but yet I'm going to get punished for it. it. It isn't until you start to really start to deconstruct that faith that that kind of stuff doesn't make sense because really what it, it added up to was that this God participates in tricking people in order to punish them like, like wicked parents do. I'm going to test you. So I'm going to tempt you. I'm going to test you in this way. And then if you fail, I'm going to punish you. That's not being loving. So it wasn't until after I left church that I began to critically examine how toxic that theology was and how much damage it had done to me. Because is that the devil, the road to hell that because the devil takes me there, it is paved with good intention, but yet God is going to punish me. Is it the devil or is it God or is it that they're both the same thing. It's a lot to think about. So this theology, obviously it had this chokehold on me for a long time. I wrestled with it my entire life. And I knew that eventually I had to get out of it because my body, my mind, my soul, everything, I was screaming that I needed to get out of this. I was suffocating and literally drowning. Now, you also have to understand that this system doesn't care about the psychological stress. It doesn't care about the emotional duress of any that it's doing to its congregants. You suffer in silence and try to remember that you stay hyper-focused on salvation. It's intended to protect the patriarchy. 
my first, uh, besides my personal experiences with it, when you saw it play out on the public platform, and this is when you started to see national news become faster to be able to get uh, information to a lot of people really quickly was Jimmy Swaggart in 1988. He, if you don't know who he is, he's a prominent televangelist of the eighties, wonderful singer, and certainly a part of my life. He was on every Sunday and sometimes Sunday night and sometimes during the week, whenever he was on, we were listening to him, but he was uh, involved in a highly publicized uh, scandal where he had been soliciting prostitutes and he he faced a significant fallout in his ministry. Now, for those of us, I think America tuned in that Sunday after it had been found out and it had been revealed and he had been caught. And he stood there with big old tears in that. You can still see videos of this. You can find him on YouTube. Big old tears in his eyes, his hands up and looking to the uh, sky. My Lord, my Lord, I have sinned against you. My Lord, my Lord. I don't recall if he apologized to his congregation, to his wife, I don't recall. It really doesn't matter because that part is what everybody remembers. He played it so beautifully that even though his prominence fell, he still has a ministry. You can still find him out there in television land. He's still worth $11 million. So he's doing just fine in when it comes to televangelists. He's doing just fine. No, he's not the Joel Olstein Mecca televangelist, but he's doing just fine because what he did was set the stage for what happens when someone who is part of the white male Christian power, I'm not going to look this way. I'm going to look this way because obviously I'm just human. I'm flawed, but I am ordained by God to do what I do. And what's happening with me is between me and God. No one else has a voice in this. And that has happened time and time again. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because the only people who have some kind of have some kind of punishment that comes from the road to hell is paid with good intentions are the ones who aren't sitting in that power. Jimmy's road to hell being paid with good intentions, just put him back at the piano where he can sing and he can pray and he can preach and he can ask for donations. That it's never, the mirror is never turned back on themselves. It's only for those, those phrases, those proverbs are only for those who need to be controlled. Jimmy is just fine. There's also, uh, I think it was either last year, it might've been 21. You can go out there and find it. If you just go to, if you just Google Indiana pastor admits adultery and the woman says he took her virginity at 16. I'm sorry if that's triggering to you. I should have given you a warning that I was saying that phrase, but it's very disturbing to see the video from that because he gets up and, and spins it in his way and admits an affair, she gets up and say, no, don't call it that. The things you did to me at my age and how, how long it went. And no, it was not just weeks. It was months. And the things you did to me and the way this changed me and you never took accountability and you never apologized. And at the end of it, do you know what that congregation did? They surrounded the pastor and there were just a handful of people comforting the woman. This is what happens when these proverbs are used and weaponized against their congregants. 
and why so many of us don't even realize that, why am I so triggered by that? It says the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Okay, I no longer believe in that literal hell. I no longer am listening to these fear-based sermons. So how, why is this triggering to me? It's because we have all witnessed this, where these sermons and these and these proverbs and things like this were weaponized to control us. We didn't even realize it at the time, the impact that they were having on us, but it was big. So for me, the road to hell was found in church. That is where I finally realized uh, the only way I'm going to escape hell is to leave church because the leaders there taught me that whatever the offense, leaders were unapproachable. Because their ordination, whether it was from a seminary or from the back room where the head pastor decides who's going to be a pastor, and you don't even know that the ordination qualifications are a moving target, it doesn't matter. Patriarchy protected that veil of so-called sanctity. And that meant the rest of us were always going to be compromised in some way. Our safety, our integrity, our spirituality, our well-being was always going to be compromised to protect that patriarchy. So that is the reality that many of us face in these high-controlled churches. And the reality is that we then have to look at how these sayings have been used against us and how we can heal from them. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about where I said I, I wanted to try to build a bridge from this to the spiritual but not religious. And I'm not sure that at the end of this blog that I really did, except to say this, that there was a report that came out the end of this uh, last month, I believe, um, where the Southern Baptists admit that they have lost hundreds of thousands of followers since they took a hard turn right into Trump's arms, hundreds of thousands. Now, I'm sure if you ask them, the falling away of these people will be because y'all are having a crisis of faith. But we, the falling away, are telling a different story. It's not that we're trying to even, most of us don't even care what they're saying. Because when you are moving away from a high controlled relationship, whether it's church whether it's an, an abusive relationship, whether it's a your work situation, your school, whatever it is, friends, whatever it is, when you're moving away from that, you no longer care about how the game is played. You no longer care what they're saying about you because they will always say something to serve the power, to serve the control. They're not going to tell the truth. They can't. So it's up to us to find each other, share our stories, share our experiences so that we can help each other on this healing journey. So I wrote, what I care about is this, for those who find themselves here after leaving church and trying to make sense of a lost faith and a path forward, I've got you. I don't weaponize scripture here because you're not a mistake. And I don't silence voices because everyone's story matters. So this is where the healing begins, looking at scripture through a different lens, being inspired by it instead of fearing it, releasing this quote truth that we were told about the words in the Bible that were written thousands of years ago and saying, okay, that's complete. Let's just now keep it, contain it and make everybody live by it. No, we see that we are continuing the story. 
and that we are being invited to continue to tell the story about how humanity is evolving and changing and growing and becoming aware of how we're all interconnected, not how we need to control each other. That story will continue long after we're gone, but we write our words while we're here. So for me, the road to hell is a metaphorical path that reminds us that consequences follow bad decisions. So these bad decisions come from not listening to sound advice or pausing to reflect on what the outcome will be once a decision is made. The holy can be invited into that discussion in meaningful ways, not to trap you, but inspire you. And I wish I could wave a magic wand and tell all of us how our story ends, but life doesn't work that way, does it? Finding freedom in life after religion makes the path away from religion worth the journey, but it is indeed a journey. The only road to hell is the one for the poor soul who is sitting stagnant in the pews, knowing that the theology being preached no longer serves their highest good. And I think every one of us knows that. We feel that. There was a point, even for me, where I thought, I'm just going to stay and fake it in the pews. It's easier than try to navigate what's out there. Where am I going to go? But in that scenario, the soul can never be fully nourished and empowered. Leaving church showed me how, how much I had been living in fear. That road to hell became my road to liberation, and I'm forever grateful I made that decision. Okay, beloved, thank you for listening. You can watch the uncut version of today's episode on my YouTube channel, Spirituality Matters with Rev. Carla. And you can always connect with me on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, and at my website at RevCarla.com, where you can find information about my up upcoming live teachings, my courses, and coming soon, Sundays with Rev. Carla. Okay, beloveds, I'm honored to be in this space with you. Go in peace, be at peace. Go in love, may you be loved. Go and know that others are on this journey with you and you are not alone. You are seen and deeply and unconditionally loved just the way you are. Blessings on your week and I'll see you soon. Bye for now.